Hi, I am Kevin Williamson, and this is How the World Works, where we talk about work and jobs we've had and the role of work in our lives, in our economy, in our social life. Uh, one of the problems these discussions have is that all my friends are writers. And uh, today's guest, Klon Kitchen, is also a writer, but he's done a lot of other interesting things in his life. So welcome, and thank you for being here. Happy to be here. So 20-odd years ago, you are at Bryan College, mm -hmm. you are studying Bible, mm -hmm. and you have an intention. If I recall, were you going to be? Were you going to go into ministry? I was going to be a seminary professor. Seminary professor was your plan. What happened next? <laughs> so um, my senior year, uh, uh, I was I was a dual major, theology, philosophy, and my senior year, um, there was a scholar who came and did a series of, of talks at Bryan. His name is Don Carson, New Testament scholar, brilliant guy, kind of guy I wanted to be essentially at that time. And um, he and I ended up going for a walk around the, the quad. And uh, he was at a seminary uh, known as Trinity up in Deerfield, Illinois. And uh, Don said, Klein, you seem like a great guy. I'd love to have you up at Trinity. Um, I had just recently gotten engaged as well uh, to my wife, Tracy. And he said, um, but you know, go be, go be married for a year or two and be a part of a local church and then come to seminary. It'll, it'll be more useful to you and you will be more useful to me if you do that. And, you know, at that point it's like, okay, you're Don Carson. I'm just going to say, do what, what, what you think is right. And you're 20. Uh, yeah, I'm 20. That's right. Um, and, uh, so we graduate, Trace and I get married a month after graduating and we moved to Columbus, Georgia, where I had gotten a job as a high school teacher teaching ninth through 12th grade uh, Bible classes. So I wrote the curriculum for this school. Uh, the ninth grade was uh, kind of a history of Israel. Tenth grade was um, uh, a New Testament survey. And then juniors were theology and apologetics. And then senior year was something called worldview, philosophy, and ethics. And so the way I would describe that is I would tell their parents, like, listen, ninth through 11th grade, I'm going to be helping your students draw big, dark lines in their worldview. But as seniors, I'm going to try and blur all that out and then spend the year kind of uh, putting it back together for them as they go off to college and helping them think through that. So did that. I loved it. I loved teaching. Had a great time. Um, but then happy newlywed, new job, new town, living the dream. Life is good. Yeah, it was really it was really great. Um, it really was. I, I look back very fondly on those days. And I loved the students and the school was great and they were very kind to me. Um, but about that time, we were getting ready to go into the 2000 election campaign. So I graduated college in 99. And, um, and for the first time, really, I started paying attention to politics and I found that I had a, a deep interest in foreign policy. It just I found it fascinating. I had never really thought about it before. And uh, it really began to resonate with me. And over the course of that year, I started thinking, maybe I want to try and get into this world. This is really cool. But of course, here I am, you know, kind of this theology philosophy major, and I want to now go into foreign policy, and I'm trying to map out some way toward that. And, um, and this is before 9-11. And so what I, what I got in my brain was, uh, well, I know terrorism 
is kind of an issue, right? We had had the 98 embassy bombings. Um, and I thought- First World Trade Center bombing. Exactly right. Yep. The blind shake. And I said, well, hmm, I wonder if I could pivot my kind of theological training to working counterterrorism issues. There's obviously a nexus there. And so I got it in my head that I wanted to be an FBI agent. And uh, I convinced my lovely and incredibly over-trusting wife that we should sell everything, essentially, that we had, move to Washington, D.C. without jobs so that I could pursue a career in the FBI. Did you know anyone who worked for the FBI? No. No, there was no strategy. <laughs> this is this was a, a terrible plan. I, my, so my, this was, I saw Silence of the Lambs, and that, <laughs> and that looks like fun. Let's see. They, they carry guns. That's cool. And yeah, I mean, like, this is this is fun stuff. Um, and sure, of course, I can make it. You know, the world's my oyster. I mean, you know, very little thinking. And I'm sure. I mean, looking back, I'm sure we put our parents through like unbelievable concern. But to their credit, I mean, they they largely just said, you know, okay, go for it. Nothing would ever get done that is interesting if it weren't for people who are too young and stupid to really calculate the risks. Yeah, that's right. But I tell you, as the parent of a child who's now 19, I, can, <laughs> I would have opinions on this strategy. <laughs> I imagine you would. Uh, yeah. So anyways, um, there's more to that story. But I eventually, uh, I end up moving to D.C. And I end up, you know, we started attending a, a local church. And at that church is, at this point, the FBI's director of recruitment. And so I get to know him. And we go out one Sunday after church. We go out with he and his family to Generous George's Pizza Palace in Alexandria, Virginia. And he's very kind, very patient with me, and he talks to me. But at the end of it, he essentially says, yeah, there's no way. This isn't going to happen for a lot of reasons. And uh, I remember walking out uh, of that lunch. Uh, I'm a pretty resilient guy. I typically don't kind of get broken up on things. But this one kind of was a gut punch. And I looked at Tracy and said, the one person who could definitively say no, just said no. And I don't know what to do now. <laughs> so at about that time, I had gotten an entry-level position with a company called Periscope. And Periscope was a, a type of news database. Um, and my job was, I was called the nation's editor. So I would do open source, meaning unclassified, just internet research. And I would inventory militaries and I'd write reports. So this is how many tanks Russia has, what their air force looks like, that kind of thing. And then a lot of our clients were uh, other news organizations and some departments and agencies in the U.S. government. And they would just use it as a, a part of the way that they kind of filled out their, their knowledge base. But because I've got my eye on the ball and I still want to be uh, a counterterrorism guy, I talk to my bosses and I say, how would you guys feel if I started building a, a terrorism database, if I did these kinds of reports, but on, on terrorist groups? And they said, sure, give it a go. You know, we'll see if anybody's interested. So then 9-11 happened. And on September 11th, 2001, I had written and published two reports. Um, one was a group that everybody would know, Hezbollah. And another was on this group who had done the 98 embassy bombings and the USS Cole bombing in Yemen in 2000. And it was Al-Qaeda. And so quite literally overnight, um, 
my name became associated with someone who knew something about Al Qaeda. How much how much work had you done on Al Qaeda at this point? Oh, minimal. I mean, a like, month of research. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, probably probably closer to two to three months. Okay. But there wasn't a lot out there. I mean, it was this you know obscure group. Mm-hmm. There were no there are no real articles. I mean, there was some stuff. Um, but I you know kind of pulled it together and and you know um, among our uh, clients at at Periscope were agencies like the CIA and the Department of Defense and those kinds of people. So within a matter of weeks, um, I found myself in the E-ring of the Pentagon in a conference room full of very serious people interviewing for the U.S. intelligence community to become a counterterrorism intelligence professional. And within just a few weeks after that, I showed up for my first day of job or first day of work. And that began my career as a, you know, an intel officer and a guy who does national security and at that time, counterterrorism for a living. It's an interesting supply and demand problem. It's an example I've used a number of times, and it's an unfair comparison, but I like it. It's that, uh, you know, on the day those attacks happened, the U.S. government had, I want to say, 47,000 revenue agents. <laughs> and the bin Laden desk was six people. That's right. Or something like that. That's right. So, yeah, there were only six people working on it. So, number seven was probably a... <laughs> A good really place important. to be. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. So um, to the extent that you can tell us mm-hmm. about what you did in that capacity, what was that work like? Yeah. So the, over the course of a career, it, it varied quite a bit. Um, the early days uh, involved me um, working with the Department of Defense. Um, I was attached to Joint Special Operations Command, which is a special forces organization. Um, and and was focused on the bin Laden hunt. So actually looking for he and Zawahri and, and, and a couple of others. Uh, and that would involve deploying and doing that type of support work. Uh, and did that for several years. Um, I am very, I'm profoundly thankful that I did it. I don't miss it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's a high tempo, high intensity, uh, high cost work, but there are amazing professionals who continue to do that work and it's um, it's critical. So a day in the life is like what? I mean, you're you're reading, you're doing interviews, you're writing reports, you're doing what kind of stuff? Well, so again, it, it kind of varied. So in the early days, so it's much more formalized now. In the early days, we were building this as we as we flew, and what was especially needed was subject matter experts who could then be operationally relevant. And so what that meant was um, the military uses a term called chopped. So I, I was chopped to JSOC, which meant essentially my home department said, here, JSOC, take this guy and do whatever you want with him so that he can augment what you're doing. And so my job in that role um, was to bring what we call national level intelligence. So all the satellites and all the all source information, all that kind of stuff. I was the conduit through which that information flowed to these units. And we would use that for the specific work of trying to find bin Laden and target and do operational capturing, kill missions and things like that. Um, My work normally consisted of like facilitating all of that, being a subject matter expert to augment what they were doing. But then when we were actually deployed forward and, and, and doing activities, uh, you would do what's called sensitive site exploitation. So if you, if you take down a target, 
uh, experts will kind of flow in, immediately start doing collection. And what do we find? Okay, I'm reading this paper. It says this. And the idea was to build follow-on targets in rapid succession that you could immediately kind of execute and move out on uh, before they had a chance to squirt, you know, to kind of go to ground or hide in another place. And then we would also support what's called battlefield interrogation, right? So we've got a, we've got a detainee for the same purpose. I need to learn everything they know. So, you know, we would facilitate all that. And there's all kinds of other stuff that we did. But essentially it was um, rapid succession, ongoing targeting missions, mm-hmm. uh, trying to move up the, the, the chain uh, toward bin Laden, you know, from couriers all the way up to the man himself. So less of the stuff you like and more of the stuff you don't like. What was the stuff you don't like? Well, then it was the administrivia of being a manager, you know. It's, administrivia. Yeah, that's I don't right. think I've ever heard that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, that it, is a great one. I'm going to use that. It, yeah. It's the, you know, performance evaluations and budgets and uh, dealing with employees who are difficult, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was less of the, uh, hey, I'm out there kind of running and gunning and doing cool, interesting things and stuff I can't really talk about, but you understand it's pretty cool. Um <laughs> But it's funny because yeah. as I as I've progressed in my career, uh, it's the stuff I used to hate that I actually kind of kind of like now. You know, I, I like leading teams, I like building teams, I like um, coaching uh, team members, and 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 you know, setting them up for success. I like I like that stuff now. You know, the, the people management aspect of that must be interesting because you know, immediately after nine eleven, we're first in Afghanistan. It's not as though the endeavor were entirely um, resource unconstrained, mm. but there are a lot of resources available oh, yeah. and people were very motivated and there was a, a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. You know, and you as someone who's also worked in nonprofits and in journalism, mm-hmm. understand what a resource constrained organization where people are not feeling very urgent uh, sometimes anyway, yeah. uh, can, can feel like. But then over the years, is this just becomes normal and this is just how life is. And we've got an ongoing counterterrorism operation and the cybersecurity stuff that you're into as well. The sense of mission, I would have to imagine, and the sense of urgency doesn't go away, but it becomes less intense. So how does that affect how you, you manage people and, and run an organization? So from my experience um, until, I, until I left that part of the government, was still in the heydays. I mean, we, we, the, 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 the biggest constraints we faced were, um, space. So a billet is just like a, a, um, a, a position, you know, somewhere on an Excel spreadsheet, we had, you know, 10 billets or 10 spots for people. Well, at that time we were literally hiring three people for every billet under the assumption that the money and positions were just going to keep flowing year after year. And so we figured, okay, we'll figure it out. Like we have to have bodies. We'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, that's really the way we operated for almost a decade. Uh, and that was largely true. Um, what I experienced in terms as time goes on. So even right now, so here we are 22 years later. Um, counterterrorism hasn't gone away in terms of its national importance and, and kind of as a critical mission. Um, but we've got other problems. You know, and and thankfully, because we've spent two decades on this, we've gotten better at it and we're more efficient and we're not creating everything on the fly now. We've got systems and we've got processes and we've got um, proven methodologies and those are being implemented. And that allows you then to kind of routinize some of this and make it more normal. And we've done that. So that's largely, I think, a sign of success to the degree that it doesn't lead to complacency. And 
from from the intelligence community's perspective, I have no doubt that we are not complacent. Policymakers are a different story, but I don't control that. Yeah. Know? Um, but now we're we're focusing on as you you know, I, and this is part helps explain a little bit of my professional transition. Um, cyber concerns mm-hmm. and and broader technology influences on national security are something I've spent almost as much time on now. Yeah. So you take off the boots and you put on the wingtips and you go take a desk job for a while. And that was, was doing what? Uh, I was a manager. I became mm-hmm. part of the problem, you know? So <laughs> I was, I was, a, I was a, a team lead and a manager and, you know, slowly marching up the, the kind of bureaucratic food chain. Um, I had, and you some, worked at the national defense university. Uh, so, yep. So I did, so I, I did the, you know, kind of the, the intelligence desk job thing uh, until let's call it 2010, I think. Uh, And then at that point, even though it was a desk job, it was still high high tempo work. And so I had the opportunity to go to the National War College and I was originally sit there to get a master's degree. So I go there in 2010, I get a master's degree in a couple months. Um, And then they, the, the school, asked me to stay on as a um, as a fellow and to to be a graduate school instructor. And so I get permission from my home agency and I stay at the school. So I'm still an employee of the U.S. government, but I'm on a rotation at the National Defense University where for four years I teach grad school to um, national security professionals like me, both from the United States and partner and ally countries. So you ended up being a professor after all. I did. I, I did. And I loved it. I love teaching. I still love teaching. Um, and uh, this included both civilians and military personnel. So I did that for four years. And I really did love it. I enjoyed it very much. Um, one, of, one of the last things I did before going on that rotation involved um, what we'll call strategic communications and influence. Mm-hmm. And uh, a part of what I did there was I was given the opportunity to establish an informal advisory board of the chief marketing officers from a couple of leading companies, including some technology companies. Uh, we would give them a clearance. We would bring them in and we would tell them, like, hey, here's a, here's a communications or an influence campaign that we're, we're trying to think through. Can you help us think through as a professional communicator how we would go about doing this and measuring effect and that kind of thing? And it was about this time that the um, that this whole world of, of kind of data driven marketing was really coming online, was becoming a thing. And so I started getting really fascinated by that. Um, and then I go to the National Defense University, and one of the courses I develop and teach is on strategic communications. And I just decide. I remember sitting in my office deciding, like, okay, this is now my this is my thing. I'm now going to pivot to cyber and technology because I just see these worlds colliding with national security going, going forward. And so I spent a couple of years really trying to hone my expertise on those things, thinking, writing, speaking, that kind of thing. Wasn't long after that, that um, Ben Sass from Nebraska became a newly elected Senator. His chief of staff, one of the last grown-ups in American politics, which is he, why he didn't last very exactly long. <laughs> right, right, right. He fought a good fight, uh, and like any sane person, decided he had had enough. Yeah. Um, but uh, his first chief of staff. I don't want that to sound dismissive, by the way. I like Ben Sass a lot, and uh, no, I'm, I'm I'm a big fan. No, I, mean, I think both of us are completely empathetic with yeah. with kind of how he 
feels about these things. Um, anyways, his first chief of staff was a was a mutual friend, and uh, that man was kind enough to to give Ben some of my writings on these issues. Ben found them interesting and invited me to come speak with him. So I did, and this was this was like this, this is quintessential Ben Sass. He's um, an unusually smart guy. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no. You're largely just kind of keeping up. Yeah. You know, even if you don't know something, he catches on pretty quick. Um, but foreign policy and national security was actually something that he had not spent a lot of time on. And he was, he was a voracious consumer of information. Didn't come up a lot in Nebraska. Did not. Yeah, yeah I'd say. Um, but I, I remember our first meeting. And at that time, he he um, scheduled himself in seven-minute increments. And so we started with, okay, Klein, we've got 21 minutes. I want you to talk about three things. Go. Right? That's how it started. <laughs> right? And it's just quintessential bit. Well, uh, so, you know, okay, you know, here's three things to think about. And uh, we ended up going for like 45 minutes or whatever. And he says, okay, I want you to come back. I want you to tell me five things you can talk about. I'll choose three of them again, and we'll do that. It's like, <laughs> okay, great. So we do that. And, uh, you know, it wasn't long after that that, uh, you know, his, his chief of staff comes to me and says, listen, come come be Ben's national security advisor. He's very serious about these issues. He wants to do some work on national security and cybersecurity. You know, come on. This will be fun. We're going to make a dent. Let's do it. And as I said, you know, by that point in my career, I'd kind of gotten to the point to where it was like, all right, I'm, I'm not super jazzed about everything that's kind of ahead of me here. I feel like I've done that. Um, and so this was cool. You know, I remember thinking to myself, even at that point, Ben has a healthy um, distaste for this job. And that makes me want to do it with him. Like, okay, this guy wants to just kind of go in there and make a dent and maybe break some stuff. And I'd be happy to help him do that. Yeah. Very compelling guy. So I go do that. Uh, I spend three years as his national security advisor, learn a lot about the legislative process. He built a team, like at that point, uh, still one of the most high capacity, uh, high functioning teams I've ever been a part of just in terms of like pure horsepower, just really, really rock stars. Um, and it was, it was, it was a great opportunity to kind of figure out, okay, how does Congress work or not? Um, and, and how does a policymaker on the legislative side, I'd mastered the executive, understood that. How does the legislative side work? And, uh, while it wasn't always a fun experience and, and, uh, I have no intention of kind of going back to the Hill, mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And, yeah. um, incredibly helpful for me as a professional. So at this point in your career, you've done a lot of cool and interesting things. Mm. But one of the cool things that you have not done at this point is make a whole lot of money. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that, that is true. Um, you know, government work, it's a healthy salary and good benefits and all that. But yeah, yeah you are not um, you are not kicking it in the Caribbean on your on your yacht at this at this point in life. No. And you lined up a, a pretty big job with um a big famous technology company, and oh. it looked like there was going to be a um, big change in life mm-hmm. for the uh, Kitchen family, and then it didn't work out. You mind telling me that story? Because so, as you know, all of my best work stories are about getting fired. Oh, yeah. So you, right. you just you didn't get fired, no. but uh, you got uh, – Yeah. So <clears throat> um, so as, as uh, after three years working on the Hill um, – had decided like, okay, I, you know, I've, I've kind of learned this. I get it. Want to think about something new. And um, yes, yeah, so a, a very large technology company actually reached out to me. And um, well, I mean, it was I mean, recruited is probably 
uh, an overstatement. A senior executive called me and said, I want to have lunch and I want to tell you about a position and I want you to give me your resume by the end of the day. So call that whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, it was a lovely invitation is what it was. <laughs> uh, so we went to lunch and uh, they were establishing a new position. It was going to be a, uh, I think it was like director for cybersecurity policy. Uh, big, big job, cool job. Uh, ama- amazing company, all kinds of cool things to go along with it. And, uh, you know, started going through the process. Uh, f- kind of flew through the process, right? You know, met all the right people, had the conversations. HR is talking to me. Well, we, we had kind of come to a, an agreement on, on, on what comp would be. It was significantly more than... Um, Working on the Hill. Well, I was trying to think if it was more than like my salary up until that point cumulatively <laughs> it was it was a lot it was it was it was it was it was very attractive yeah um and then after like you know multiple calls a week conversation just kind of went cold and you know we're at that point where we're like well okay maybe there's just some kind of process that this is going through let it ride no big deal three weeks in no messages Start kind of pinging politely. Hey, you know, just want to check in. Is there anything else you need? Get nothing back. Now I'm starting to get a little concerned. It's a bad feeling. Yeah, it's it's not super awesome. And by this time, because of the way schedules had worked, everything, I've given notice to the senator. I'm on my way out. Like, that's how far these conversations really were. And um, I remember there was a Friday night. Uh, Tracy and I were sitting on the couch. We put the kids to bed. And uh, we're watching... Who knows, some movie. And it's about 9 o'clock on the East Coast. I get a call. And it's this wonderful, wonderful HR representative who I've been dealing with for weeks. who has been truly great. And um, she says, Klan, I just uh, got some bad news. We've decided to go a different way. And I said, okay. Um, I would love to know why. Uh, My impression was... (laughs) that things were going exceedingly well and that, frankly, that this was kind of done. You didn't know there was another way. I didn't know there was another way. I thought I was the way. Um, And she said, no, no, this has nothing to do with You've been wonderful. Everybody who has talked to you has said, you know, you're great. And we actually would love you. And and, and perhaps at this point, I don't know how this may have just been HR speech, but it's like, in fact, we'd like to continue talking to you about other possibilities. That never happened. Um, I said, okay. I assume you found a a preferred candidate. Yes. And I said, okay, uh, can you tell me anything about the business? Well, I can't tell you his name, but I'll I'll give you some background. And, you know, this person um, had an undergraduate degree in computer science from, I think, Stanford, a law degree from, I think, Yale, and had just recently left a very senior political appointee position in the administration. Mm -hmm. I was like, well... Okay. I mean, you know, if you're going to lose out, losing out to a unicorn like that is about as good as you can get. I said, I totally understand. I said, I'm obviously very disappointed. I would love to keep having a conversation with you. Um, but, you know, I wish you all nothing but the best. And yeah. you know, that kind of thing. so I hang up. And, uh, man, like. Not a fun conversation with the wife. Well, she's obviously picking up on things sitting next to me as I'm having this conversation. Sure, yeah. So she's put two and two together. Um and you know, again, man, I'm like, you know, Tracy, mm-hmm. so you understand. But like what I didn't get from her was fear. Oh, my gosh. What does this mean? Like, I'm feeling all that. Yeah. You know, like I'm out of a job. Like, 
I got two weeks, I think. And the one thing I had that I thought for sure just completely fell. And I think we were going into like December and I was like, there's no one who's going to hire me in December. Like it's not a great job hunting season. I am starting from scratch with like no buffer, um, which was a position I had never thought I would, that just never crossed my mind that I would be doing that. Well, anyway, so none of all that's in my head. None of that is coming out of her mouth. And all she is doing is like, you okay. You know, like she's engaging me and just being awesome. Um, and man, I felt, I, I don't know that I've ever felt that feeling before or since where I was just at a loss. I had no answer. Like the gravity of the situation set in like, okay, this is a thing. And I don't know what to do. Like, I, I don't have a plan. I have no, I, I don't know what to do here. So I, you know, we, we talked about, you know, just kind of processed out loud for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And I just remember looking at her and I was like, I'm going to go to bed. Often a good idea. You know, honestly, I would love to tell you that that was a, an intelligent, wise decision <laughs> that I made. I'll be honest with you. I think it was pure escapism. Yeah. I think it was just like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to drive myself crazy thinking about this. I'm like sad and I'm scared and I don't know what, I don't know what this means. So I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to lay down and I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'll deal with it then. And that's really what I did. And the next morning, you know, um, I was, I was better. I mean, I wasn't like giddy. I still had some real decisions to make. Um, but you know, uh, sun was up, kids are there. Things are fine. We'll figure it out. And, you know, by God's grace, they were. I, I ended up finding opportunities. And um, that's that's shortly thereafter is when I kind of started moving into um, the think tank world mm-hmm. and the uh, the kind of public uh, intellectual writing stuff. Yeah. The first part of a situation like that is always the worst part, mm. uh, I find. But the scramble is not any fun either. No. When you're trying to figure out, well, I've got to, you know, pay the bills and mm-hmm. you've got, you know, bunch of kids and oh, not a huge bunch of kids, but a fair bunch of kids. Yeah. And, um, you know, you were not a happy go lucky bachelor with no expenses and, uh, no responsibilities or something like that. That's when you're like, when you're 27 and single and broke, I mean, you've never been 27 and single cause you were married young, but, um, you can afford to be broke for That's a right. while. It's not so bad. That's and right. it's not, it's not off anyone's, uh, no one's problem, but your own. You know, just real quick. I think one of the things th- you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, I think part of what was going on there, I mean, there was the there was the immediacy of the, you know, how am I going to satisfy needs and that kind of thing. But I think what it did fundamentally is it shook my identity, and I've as I've gotten older, I've realized how much this is a part of my identity. But it it shook my identity as a provider and a protector for my family. Mm-hmm. That was disorienting, you know. Because it made um, you understand how tenuous the position can be. I real I I I spent time and I made a series of like self-referential notes that I still keep. Um, and the first one was nobody owes you anything. I hadn't done anything wrong. Yeah, like there was no mistake here. Nobody was really being. Nobody was being mean to me. Yeah, you know, I I, I wasn't owed this. 
you know, I couldn't claim it as a, as a right, right? I just thought it was going to happen. And I had been good at my jobs and people liked me. And like, so there was, there was no, there was no evil character to blame. This, my, my, my version of those notes is I have a folder I keep that says, you are not smart yeah. on it. Yeah. And I have like some uh, stock option certificates in there from a job <laughs> I had once that are completely worthless and a few other things right. of, uh, of that nature. Yeah. Um, where'd you grow up? So my folks uh, divorced when I was three. Mm -hmm. And so that meant a lot of my growing up period was split between um, largely Atlanta, Georgia. And then my dad was in the military. So wherever, wherever dad was, gotcha. I would see him during the summers typically. Um, and then uh, after I graduated high school, um, my mom and stepdad moved to Florida. And then really, I never was home again after that. So I mm -hmm. went to school uh, uh, at a small Christian liberal arts school in, in Tennessee. So I was in Tennessee. Um, since Is that name for William Jennings, Brian? Yeah, I went to Bryan College um, uh, in, in, in Dayton, Tennessee, home of the Scopes Monkey Trial. Uh, oh, okay. So that makes sense then. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. And um, no Clarence Darrow College there. No Clarence Darrow College. Uh, that's um, too bad. Yeah. Um, so they'd be great at crosstown rifles. It, that's right. We would definitely steal each other's mascots. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, but ten, I, I largely I, I consider actually Tennessee home because I was actually born in Nashville and then I went to college and kind of stayed there for a while. Mm. So Tennessee is what I consider home. Did you have um, summer jobs and stuff like that when you were mm -hmm. a kid? Did you, what'd you do? Did you work at a fast food restaurant? Did you? Let's see. Um, most summers. So uh, let's see, I was 16. So sophomore summers of my sophomore, junior and senior year were spent as a lifeguard at a Salvation Army camp mm -hmm. in Columbus, Georgia, not Columbus, Georgia, Jasper, Georgia. There's a camp called Camp Grandview and um, I was a lifeguard. And so uh, I spent my summers in a lifeguard chair or in a pontoon boat on a lake. Still a good swimmer? Yeah. I actually, funny story, I, um, I swam before I walked. It's an odd family story, but my dad and stepdad were friends. And so when I was very, very young, before I could walk, my stepdad would be treading water in the deep end. My dad would go to the end of the diving board and I'd be in diapers and they would drop me in the deep end and I would you know, kind of paddle up to the top and kind of make my way to the side. And so water has always been like this kind of second home. I've always been incredibly comfortable in the water. I love the water still. And uh, yeah, still a good swimmer. At what point, it sounds like maybe it was in college with this um, visiting lecture you talked about, but at what point did you sort of get a larger imagination about what was possible for you in life? Because I, not knowing anything about the people you grew up with, I would imagine your career looks not very much like that of most of the people you went to high school with. So. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that I've been able to do, I didn't know existed Yeah, uh, in college. You know, I honestly think that's been a little bit of an incremental discovery. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I can't remember at least a moment where I thought, oh, well, here's the great big wide world and I'm now charting a path through it. I, I, I think... Um, I think when I was given the opportunity to join the U.S. government, mm -hmm. I discovered a world I didn't know existed, and I wanted to, like, explore that world. Yeah. Like, I'm going to do some cool stuff here that I never thought I'd be able to do, um, so I'm going to do that. And then that's just, you know, slowly um, given me a view into other aspects of that world. 
Um, so that kind of expands the national security awareness, which then leads me into policy, which then leads me into politics, which then leads me into kind of think tank public commentary. Right. And at some point I looked at myself and I said, huh, I've got even for people who've been in this work, my career seems to be a little more diversified even than theirs. You know, yeah. a lot of them have been in this lane and they've kind of stuck to that. And I was much more of a, um, uh, of a rolling stone. You know, I would do something, I would seemingly master it and then I'd want to do something else. And then I'd want to go master that. Yeah. So I, when I was in college, I was um, actually on a trip to New York and I met some guys who um, worked in private equity. And I, I knew there was such a thing as wall street, probably if at the time, or at least when I was in high school, if you had asked me what people did there, I would say they were stockbrokers, yeah. which is not what they are, of course. Right. But, uh, but anyway, so I met these guys, and they're, they're impressive guys. But I, I remember thinking that there's nothing really special about these people. I mean, yeah, they're smart and they work hard. But what they've done is they've found this occupation. They've learned a lot about it and applied themselves to it. And they know a lot about this one particular thing. I could do this thing probably if I wanted to. It's not what I want to do in life. But you know, previously, I thought of there's like this sort of special, magical you know, mm. class of people who just do this thing or that thing. And it's not really that. It's um, they are just sort of ordinary people who've um, either through, you know, good luck and hard work and a combination of other things happened into uh, these careers that from the outside seem very, very mystical. Mm. Because if you're not doing it, it's not just, you know, Wall Street or finance or the, the kind of work you've done. You know, journalism is this way. Government work is this way. Sometimes police work is this way that people who haven't done it on a day to day basis, at least for, you know, a few months, just have a really hard time understanding of, of what it's like. I remember a conversation I had with a guy later in life. Um, he had this big, beautiful uh, home in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, the, you know, the main line. And uh, and it wasn't to my taste, but it was it was it was a really nice place. And I asked him, I was like, what do you like? I don't want to buy this house, but I would like to be able to have the sort of resources where I could do something like that. What do you do? Hmm. And he's like, well, you know what I do? I'm the you know president of a XYZ trust company. I was like, yeah, I, I know. But what what do you do? Um, you know, what do you actually spend your days doing? And it took me a while to kind of figure it out. It took him a while to explain it because mm -hmm. once you've been doing something for a long time, it's just what you do and you forget how to explain it to people and um, or to people who have no frame of reference to to begin with. Like if you're talking to someone else in your profession or who does something adjacent to it, you can explain yourself pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But to someone who doesn't have any kind of background in it, it takes um, it takes a while to, um, to do that. Because there's a sort of proverb that you don't really understand a subject very well until you can explain to someone who, yep. who doesn't understand it. And I think yep. that's that's true of it. So you go um, through this uh, disappointing process and tell me about the work you do now. Okay. So, um, well, <clears throat> so part so of- what, what, what do you do? So what would you say you do here? What do you say you do here? Um, so, okay, uh, I am the managing director of a strategic advisory firm in Washington, D.C. that specializes in uh, foreign policy and national security consulting. Which so is what kind of people hire a firm like yours? So essentially, our clients include um, globally influential and relevant companies who need to understand and engage the uh, U.S. national security enterprise. So that's the policymakers to do national security. That's the, um, you know, the defense leaders and intelligence community, like where, where the equities represented by those stakeholders 
are equities that that global companies have to understand and and kind of navigate. So, for example, you know, a company who wants to understand, hey, where's U.S. China policy going, and what is this going to mean for me and my supply chain, and you know, I'm dependent on um, semiconductors that are made in Taiwan. Does the U.S. government think that there's going to be a, a war in in Taiwan anytime soon? So, if you're a company that gets fifty four percent of its revenue from the sale of cell phones manufactured in China. Now you might care about that sort of thing. Those are the kinds of companies right. that might have I'm not asking you about specific Right, right. Those yeah. are the kinds of companies who would have uh who who have an interest in, in what we we know. Um so it's a very it's in, in one sense it's a very DC kind of consulting firm. Mm-hmm. But um one of the real utilities I think and the thing that is a little bit of our magic sauce is that we're not just trusted and valued by the companies, but we're actually trusted and and, and uh, valued by the government. Mm-hmm. The government has a high, and we 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 actively cultivate this and defend it. Um, they have a high confidence that when uh, we are talking to our clients, that we are accurately representing the government's thinking and interests and why they're doing things, which is critically important. And they also have high confidence that when we're describing to them, the government, the interests of our clients and 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 why these issues are perhaps more complex or more intricate than they appreciate, that we're not just carrying water. We're a bunch of national security professionals who are fundamentally, as a, as a core principle of our business, committed to the security of the United States. Yeah. And um, it's the kind of work that, again, I didn't know existed. Um, but I might not have existed. Yeah, well, it didn't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. our company's a decade old. Yeah. Um, but it is, I feel like I caught a unicorn. Like I live in this amazing place now where, um, I live at the intersection of, of technology, which is a passion, national security, which is an expertise and business, which is an interest, Yeah, you know, and, and I love it. And, um, it's very compelling work. Again, some of the best people I've ever had the privilege of working with. Yeah. You know, I'm, I was thinking about this because there's a, you know, this antitrust action against Google that's got kicking off. You know, in the 90s, you're only a few years younger than I am. Um, I think maybe four. Uh, but, um, you know, in the sort of early heyday of the technology industry, and they were, they did not lack confidence. Mm-hmm. And some, some people might have even said that there was a, a kind of arrogance in the industry. I remember that Bill Gates used to brag about the fact that Microsoft had no office in Washington, D.C., because it was irrelevant to what they were doing. And, of course, there was the Microsoft antitrust case. And I remember that. I remember someone explaining to Judge Thomas Pinfield Jackson how a mouse works and, uh, you know, what an operating system mm-hmm. is for a computer. And I thought maybe these aren't the people who should be making that decision about this stuff because they, they clearly don't understand no. The issues, but again, it was the very early days of the stuff when people were sort of figuring that out. But that's become a whole uh, huge diversified industry of people who say, you know, particularly we're in technology, we're a multinational business just by the nature of what we do. Um, some of these technology businesses have users in countries they didn't even know they had until like it just shows up suddenly. Oh, we've got someone uh, using us here and there. Um and we have a government that is, you know, in, in my view, too large and does too many things, but is certainly um, spread out and has a lot of fingers and a lot of pies and makes decisions based on, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, legitimate policy goals, short term politics and other sorts of things that will have sometimes just existential uh, mm. effects 
on businesses that they weren't even thinking about yep. uh, when they were considering those things. And maybe they shouldn't have been thinking about, but sometimes maybe they should yep. as well. I remember I wrote a big piece about um, soybean farmers a few years ago. And soybean farmers in the United States are a really, really sophisticated multinational mm-hmm. um, group. Yep. They can actually, they would, they would be good for some of your former colleagues because they would tell you like, you know, well, this Chinese sub-minister of uh, agriculture is the one who gets real talkative after his third drink right. and uh, and that sort of thing. But, you know, they, they also had an office in China. I think they said for 20 years before they sent their first shipment hmm. of soybeans there because it takes a long time to build up those kinds of relationships. So I certainly understand. And, and they got, of course, wrecked by, you know, six months worth of uh, yeah. idiotic uh, tariffs. Um, so... Some people look at this from the outside and it looks like this, you know, kind of gross incestuous relationship between, uh, you know, technology and government and this sort of swampy thing in Washington. But at the same time, it's it's a legitimate thing. It's mm. this is how business gets done. Yep. And businesses have real, you know, political uh, vulnerabilities, certainly um, overseas, but also, you know, in the United States. Um, you know, one thing I, I, I tell people is that it's it's interesting how much our politics compresses once you cross the border. Hmm. Um, I remember one time hearing Mark Zuckerberg talk about the difficulty of doing business in Europe in general, but sort of in Germany specifically, and saying, you know, they got this regulation and that regulation and this thing and that thing. And I was like, have you ever thought about maybe applying that same line of thinking to American politics, which also maybe is, uh, is, is slightly overregulated, but never seems to quite, quite, quite occur to those people. So, um, what sort of uh, what sort of you know problems do you do you solve for your clients? Like, what's the thing they come to you with and say, okay, in the long term, yeah, I need advice and strategic input and all that, mm-hmm. but like in the next fifteen minutes, I need so, this urgent problem that I've got. What 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 does that look like? I mean, obviously, I know you can't divulge particular details and things about people's businesses, but um, what sort of stuff lands in your desk with a great sense of, oh my God, can we fix this now? Hmm. Yeah, well, so the 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 context for all of their their requests is the fact that, and I know you understand this, um, the technologies that are going to decisively shape uh, economies and societies and battlefields in the near future are overwhelmingly being developed in the private sector for commercial applications. So th- take things like artificial intelligence, right? It's not DARPA. Uh, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, it's not the DOD, the Defense Department, that's really pioneering AI at scale. You know, it's the it's the Googles and the open AIs and the Microsofts and all that. Um, so that's that's one trend line. The the a related trend line is that a lot of or a, a, a growing number of multinational technology companies now have interests and resources at a scale that previously was reserved for nation states. Yeah. And they have they exercise global influence. And they've worked really hard to achieve that, but they weren't ready for it. They didn't understand fully what they were kind of signing on to. And now those worlds are colliding and they're beginning to understand that, okay, th- th- there's there's a, a, a need now to exercise a type of leadership and influence on these issues because there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. You know, they're there. They're not going away, and and those same trend lines are going to continue going forward for the foreseeable future. And so we pride ourselves on being a full-service consulting firm, which essentially means we help our clients with whatever they need help with. Uh, now, in, in my case, um, so I lead our global technology practice. And in my case, what that means is um, 
you know, uh, helping um, navigate regulatory issues, but through a national security lens, right? So I'm not a I'm not a, a regulatory lawyer or anything like that. But <clears throat> if there is an action that has a a legitimate national security implication, we try to make sure that um, that the U.S. government understands that implication. Um, if we see it and the client doesn't know it, we make sure they understand. Like, hey, listen, you know, just understand if, if this rule is passed, it could mean this, you know, degradation of cybersecurity norms or rules or capabilities. Uh, we should make sure people understand that. So, you know, that's our kind of, that's a part of our role. Um, it's also, um, you know, helping clients who, who just want to build a better relationship with the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just purely from a sales perspective, but but from a, hey, we're actually an American company. We're committed to being an American company. We want the United States to thrive and its people to to prosper. Um, the national security enterprise is this kind of black box. Uh, can you help us navigate it? Like map it. Who's who? And, you know, how can we be helpful? We don't know how, but we want to be. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can definitely, we can definitely do that. Um so you're not lobbyist, you know, you're we're not lobbyist. Your deliverable is not, we're going to kill this provision in subsection A of this bill that's under we consideration. Are not so how do you measure success? How do you measure value for your clients? I mean, what you sell essentially, as I understand it, is advice. Yeah. Um, I mean, a high level advice and advice that comes with some services for, you know, putting together ways to contextualize and, and implement that advice, certainly. But um it's not like, you know, you're not a commission salesman. They say they give you a truckload of soap and you go out and sell it and say, I sold eight tenths of the truckload right. and I'll sell the next 20 percent uh, tomorrow. tomorrow. Um, it's it's not something that seems obviously easy to quantify. That's right. So the way we talk about it is I like to go to my clients and say, um, I want to find the problem that you have where if I fix it, it'll be 10 times the value of what I'm getting you to pay me. Like bet the business problems is what we deal with. And typically, bet the business problems are problems you manage, not problems you solve. Uh, or at least a lot of the time, that is the case. Um, and so, and then and then we help. Give me a hypothetical example. Okay. So, um, right now, there is a significant divergence between the way the United States is approaching a regulatory posture on something like artificial intelligence and the way the European Union is approaching it. Now, the context here, and this is very, well, you'll see. The the grand strategy context is the United States is currently trying to renegotiate its global alliances with partners like the EU because of the, the point I made about how the influential role that technology is going to play. So we're actually trying to rebuild our alliances with entities like the European Union so that we have trusted um, communities within those two partners of you know data transfer and secure supply chains, right? We're, we're moving supply chains out of China and we're trying to reconstitute them in trusted networks that would include Democratic allies, frankly. Mm-hmm. And we're going to build whole new alliance organizations around those kinds of things because technology is so central. So we're trying that's the that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Well, in the midst of that, uh, the United States is trying to wrap its brain around how it's going to deal with the disruptive and positive potentials of things like artificial intelligence and other technologies. 
as is the European Union. The problem is, is that increasingly it seems like our friends in Europe have concluded that if they don't want to miss out on this tech boom the way they have previously, that they have to constrain American technology companies and even pilfer them uh, for intellectual property and resources and then transfer those to their own domestic champions. Yeah, they're in a weird position where they want to be the regulatory superpower of the technology world, but they're home to essentially none, none. of the relevant companies. Precisely. And the negative feedback loop that that creates then is that there's no industry voice domestically telling them like, whoa, 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 bad idea, bad idea, bad idea. So there's, they're just able to kind of like run free, you know, and, 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 and they are. And that's creating real diplomatic tensions between the United States because it's, it's counterproductive for everybody. But it's rooted increasingly, it's, it's becoming clear that it's rooted in a type of ideological worldview distinction, you know, just like just some pretty fundamental differences in terms of how we understand the world. But it's something we have to solve. Okay. So that's context. So, you know, my client has to navigate that. They have to understand like, okay, we are trying to um, convince the EU that this strategy is actually quite harmful to business, which has downstream and significant economic impacts for them, which then makes them a less attractive and capable partner for the U.S. government and the enterprise that it's trying to do kind of geopolitically. And so we help all those parties have that conversation, we try at least, in a sophisticated manner. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand the implications, both you know, primary, secondary, and tertiary? And then, hey, U.S. government, like you have an interest in helping our friends figure this out. Oh, and by the way, you know, you're taking these actions, which I think is inadvertently allowing or, or um, encouraging them to kind of do this. And then, oh, by the way, all of this is as you guys are, you know, kind of doing this internal firing squad, some very dangerous Chinese alternatives are sneaking in underneath this whole conversation and growing their market presence. And, and so it, it's, it's our job to be incredibly sophisticated and better informed than everybody about all of that. It's interesting the way your problem-solving options have evolved over the course of your career. I mean, you can't just now send a team of guys to kidnap Ursula von der Leyen and uh, solve your problem. It's just not going to... Uh, I have no comment on that idea. Not going to do it. <laughs> it's underway. We'll know who to look for uh, when it happens. Uh, she seems like a very, very nice lady. Um, before, we, uh, before we close it up, um, technology-wise, um, what's the stuff that keeps you up at night? Like, what, what's your... Uh, Sleepless night, turning over in bed. Um, this thing really, really worries me thing. So this is where I want to um, employ the line of uh, former Secretary of, De uh, of Defense, Jim Mattis, mm. uh, where he says, I don't lose sleep at night. I make other people lose sleep at night. <laughs> yes, that's a good line. It's, it's much more meaningful and true in his case than it is mine. But, sure. um, you know, I really don't. I don't. When you kind of grow up in this business, I don't lose a lot of sleep, you know. Um, number one, I'm kind of anesthetized to it. It's normal for me. And then two, I have a kind of a, a personal theology that just doesn't let me go there. I just, you know. You don't think there's a fair chance that one Thursday morning we get up and the electric grid doesn't work anymore? No, no. Uh, no, those those threats are very real. Uh, I just have kind you're just, of. You're just cool with it. Well, I have an underlying piece that doesn't let me get too freaked out about okay. it. Okay. Right. It, 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 it just is. Um, I'm not happy about it. I'm trying my best to avoid it. Yeah. Doing what I can to help avoid it. 
I worry most uh, about the overall degradation of um, it's not only social media, but but this ubiquitous technology and media, and simultaneously we're more connected and more alone. Mm. And what that's doing to us is as as people and as a culture. Um, I have very real concerns about that. My, you know, I do technology for a living. Uh, I think my daughter, who's in college now, probably didn't get a phone until she was seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was locked down. Was that a hard negotiation? You know, not with her. You you happen to know her, yeah. so she's she's peculiar. So she was not chomping at the bit for a phone, which actually made me feel much much better about giving her one. Uh, but the other the other kids have opinions <laughs> yeah. on on this on this matter. And I'm uh, just worried about how I'm going to negotiate this myself in the future. So uh, I worry about that uh, from a more kind of hard national security perspective. Um, we are perhaps more highly leveraged from a cybersecurity perspective than any other nation on the planet. So uh, many of the things that um, that we benefit that makes life in the U.S. great is also something that makes us vulnerable um, from a technological standpoint. And, you know, if you listen to uh, open source hearings, you'll hear people like uh, the director of national intelligence or the director of the national security agency all say publicly that we are uh, critically compromised by the Chinese or by uh, the Russians. And uh, they're right. And uh, that's a really hard problem to solve. And um, I see that as being a persistent reality for a while. You'd like to see your kids go into the same line of work that you're in, or would you rather see them do something else? Okay, you're gonna have to check me on this. I like I like the the John Adams quote, right? Like, what is it? I study war so that my son can study or I study politics so that my son can study art and And as the next generation gets to study agriculture and then that's the right. ones after that get to study philosophy. There you go. Things, um yeah, uh if if one of my kids said, "Hey, Dad, I want to do this," I'd, 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 I'd be down with that. I can help them, but it's not my dream for them. Yeah. You know, my my increasingly my dream is um, live a quiet, peaceful life, provide and protect for your family, and enjoy the immense privilege that we have to be in this nation at this time. I mean, it's just it's obscene. Um, when you think about the history of the world and with you, when you think about what what most people alive and who have ever lived have had to endure. Um, and so I just try to teach them to be thankful for that. And the idea that they even have the privilege of being able to choose a career is just insane. And so I want them to be happy and I want them to provide and protect. But don't work on Capitol Hill. I mean, I won't say don't, <laughs> but I'll have opinions. Right. Glenn, thanks so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks Me too. Bye. Thanks, man. That concludes the most recent episode of How the World Works. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with my friend Juan Kitchen as much as I did. You can watch the full interview online at YouTube. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. See you next time.